0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. Well, it's a joy to welcome you to today's Beeson Podcast, and I have in the studios today a person who's become a friend and a real colleague in the Lord's work, Dr. Jim Garlow. Jim Garlow is the senior pastor of Skyline Wesleyan Church in San Diego, California, one of the great congregations in our country. He's also heard daily in over 800 radio outlets nationwide in a one-minute commentary called The Garlow Perspective. And in addition to that, he serves as the chairman of Renewing American Leadership in Washington, D.C. So one question that comes to mind, how can one person do all these things and still stay intact? But obviously you have. Well, the answer is do all of them poorly. Ah. That way, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, Jim Garlow is here to speak at our Beeson Pastor School, and I wanted to take this opportunity just to talk with him, uh, informal conversation, such a fascinating person and being used of the Lord in such a remarkable way all across our country on some of the pressing moral issues of the day. Uh But let's begin with your own background. You're from Iowa. You're a Wesleyan. Talk about that. Actually, you're from Kansas. Oh, close. From Kansas. Sorry. Very close, but not quite close enough.
0: Yeah, a little tiny town called Ames, Kansas. A-M-E-S. Some people pronounce that a mess. We uh. prefer you call that Ames. Population 40. Well, yeah. 39. I'm here. And uh, <laughs> so grew up on a farm and attended a uh, little one-room country school, all eight grades, kind of Norman Rockwellian America, America that doesn't exist anymore, Mm. and a a little uh, country church that uh, literally its entire existence, it uh, had no running water, no indoor restrooms at Mm. all, and it it made it 99 years and nine months. Nobody knew it was three months away from a centennial, or they would have kept it propped open another (laughs) three months. Uh, But that little vibrant church produced 39 pastors and pastor's wives. I'm number 36 from that lot. My
1: goodness, why what was going on there vibrant
0: just vibrant Sounds alive. Like the holy spirit is at work yeah in that I, I grew up in a church that was exciting uh it was fun uh-huh. going to church even though we were a small church on a big day we might have actually 70 people including everybody but it was a vigorous church an energetic church uh, my parents were vibrant and consistent christians i mm. i never saw an example of hypocrisy in their lives mm. i was very drawn to the gospel at a young age, I I did not go through the standard rebellion. That doesn't make me better than anybody else. It just I just simply had such exceptional parenting in that particular yeah. environ, and I had a whole network—uncles, aunts, cousins—comprised the church, and uh, they were all walking with God. And it was a very exciting uh, church. We we were highly musically inclined, and the the family that sings together clings together. Huh. And so everybody played an instrument and sang and we ended up my brothers and I ended up traveling and doing concerts in uh, about a 10 state area, 500 wow. concerts over about an 8 year span.
1: What was your instrument?
0: Well, I played guitar and piano and I sang. I was really quite poor at all three, but we didn't <laughs> know it back then. That's why I don't do much of it any anymore. And but we we sang a lot of different places. My brother was finally killed in a plane crash and that brought it to a halt, but it was a it's a glorious memory we look back on and really value as a family. The privilege of getting to be in churches all over America and various concert halls, just doing these concerts. We were, we were big fish in a very tiny pond. Yeah, yeah. But we, I, I'm so
1: thankful for the impact that had on You're me. Long lasting. Now, you're the pastor of a Skyline Wesleyan church. You grew up in the Wesleyan tradition. Tell tell us a little bit about the Wesleyan church. We know the name John Wesley, and we associate it with Methodism to a great extent. But there is a Wesleyan denomination. That's your denomination. Tell us a little bit about that, and what's the heartbeat of it? The Wesleyan denomination was formed in 1843, the only denomination in America that was
0: formed for abolition, for the purpose of setting the slaves free. Our earliest churches were a day's journey apart as part of the Underground Railroad. In fact, in the Carolinas, uh, what's called Freedom's Hill Chapel had a lot of bullet holes in the side of it. And at one point in one county in South Carolina, they said there's not enough rope to hang all the Westlands. Mm. They were angry at the Westlands for freeing the slaves. Mm. It was a group of Methodist pastors who came to a conclusion in 1836, General Conference of the United Methodists. The Methodists had made a decision to allow no more discussion of the issue because it was too divisive. Mm. This group said, we're out of here. We're gone. Orange Scott is our founder, along with Luther Lee. He's the first one to ever preach at the ordination of the first female in America, Antoinette Brown, Mm. and uh, then a host of people like that that came out of the United Methodists and formed what was then called the Westland Methodist Connection. All the way up to 1969, the Wesleyan Methodist Church then merged with what was called the Pilgrim Holiness Denomination, a holiness group, and the result, they dropped the name Methodist so it would not be confused with the United Methodist, and it became simply the Westland Church from that point
1: on. I didn't know that part about the history of the Wesleyans, because... Almost every major denomination split over slavery, including the, the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the United Methodist what we call today the United Methodists. And the Episcopalians. And the Episcopalians. So uh, the Westlands were really a counter-witness to that in a very difficult time in our nation's history. They were formed
0: out of that, and then once the slavery issue was over, they were very strong on the temperance issue. They felt like the demon of alcohol had been released on the land, mm-hmm. which it had and which it still has. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that... Uh, women's rights to vote. Uh, the first women's right to vote conference was held in 1848 in a Westland church in Seneca Falls, New York. Mm. After all of that, the 150th anniversary, then-first lady Hillary Clinton went back with all the major media outlets The Seneca Falls, New York, failed to point out that original feminism was biblical feminism, not the radical left-wing feminism as today. Mm. It was pro-family. It was pro-biblical. Women were not treated as property. In, in fact, the women's right to vote was a very radical concept. Now, we, we tell the story, we, we brag, it was hosed, housed in a Westland church, and, and it was. Uh, the truth of the story is that when the women got there for that conference to meet for their right to vote, the Westland pastor had gotten nervous. He locked the doors, but the enterprising women broke through a window, got in, and had the meeting there anyway. So we, 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 we wear as a badge of honor, but uh, yeah. it, it really, maybe somebody got a little bit wimpy the last moment right. on that one. But right, we right. were one of the early denominations I don't know that we were the first, we might have been the first, I'm not certain on that, to ordain uh, females, and B.T. Roberts of the Free Methodist later wrote on that about the 1860s, a sister denomination, and then Antoinette Brown, the first ever uh, female to be ordained as a pastor in America, the man who preached the sermon was a Westland pastor.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about your academic work. You, you have degrees from Princeton, from Asbury, from Southern Nazarene, and a Ph.D. from Drew University. How did that all happen? And how, how, what was the meaning of that for you today as you think about your calling and vocation? That's a wide diversity of different places and backgrounds. Well, I grew up in a home where my mom and dad did not have education
0: past high school, but they valued education enormously. And they, they, they got it in terms of education. The purpose of education is to give one the joy of learning. And my dad and mom really had the delight and the joy of learning. My mom went back to school in her 60s, became very advanced on the computer uh dad was a constant learner and then when we would grow up on the farm and we go on vacations we always would go way out of our way to stop by any christian university that was anywhere to close we'd go out of our way we'd go to the campus dad would pull over the curb he would stop students and interview them and talk to them i remember as a child hearing this so i was on christian college campuses as a child just growing up and heard of them continually and so my parents had deep reverence and respect for teachers, for professors, for Christian education, Christian colleges. And so it was never discussed in our home that we'd go on for school that long. My dad had said that he always wanted to have a farmer, a pastor, and a doctor. And he got all three, And but never coerced any of us. We just drifted that way and, and ended up going that way. I suppose we were somewhat predestined, <laughs> but uh, predestinated might be a better word in this case, but we found ourselves drawn towards education in, in our family. All of us uh, did. As I made my way through the various uh, institutions, I went first to a Oklahoma Wesleyan University, a Wesleyan school, then on to Southern Nazarene University, Nazarene School in Oklahoma City for a master's for a bachelor's and a master's there, then to Asbury Seminary for a master's of divinity, and then to Princeton Theological Seminary for a THM, and uh, it was because it says in the Bible no man can have two masters, so I decided <laughs> to go for a third. And then um, drawn to Drew University up in the New York City area, Madison, New Jersey, uh, to study there. It has one of the largest Westlanda collections of anywhere in the United States. Probably, mm. we would like to say, bigger than Duke's, we think. Mm. And a very significant Westlanda collection. And so I ended up doing my doctorate in historical theology
1: there at Drew University. Did you know Tom Oden? Was he around in those days? He was, but
0: it was before his... Conversion, ah, and so yeah. I, I, I'm so fascinated with him because he is such an orthodox scholar. Mm. Uh, but in the day that I was there, that would not have been the case. Yeah, yeah. Not in any way that was known, at least. No,
1: he's very um, honest about that. had yes. this great conversion in his life when he saw yes. the folly of, you know, the liberal left wing uh, agenda. And uh, he's become such an important figure, I think, for so many of us, including myself, as somebody that's calling us back to historic Christian orthodoxy and to the scriptures and to the faith. Uh, and so uh, you you both have Oklahoma roots. He lives in Oklahoma now, and he taught at Drew. So it's interesting you knew him in his pre-evangelical yes. phase. The
0: class, I remember a class he was teaching at the time
1: called Transactional Analysis. That's the kind of thing he was into at that
0: time. So it's a thrilling thing to to, to have watched over over the years, uh, that amazing uh, conversion story.
1: Now, uh, say a little bit about your church, uh, Skyline Wesleyan Church. It's in San Diego. And uh, what kind of church is it? It's, I know it's a very large church. It's a church that has a tremendous impact on the community. I know that from visiting San Diego. How would you talk us, to us about Skyline?
0: Entrepreneurial, exciting, and fun. It's really an awesome church body. And the reason I say it is because We've only had three pastors, senior pastors, in our 55, 56-year history, and uh, the first one was Orville Butcher. Orville Butcher was a man who traveled in the Youth for Christ days with Billy Graham, did music for Billy Graham. In fact, he was best man in Cliff Barrow's wedding. So he ran with that group and uh, was under a youth pastor under Paul Reese back in the day in Minneapolis. And actually was invited, as I understand the story, to travel with Graham doing music and said, you know, I want to go pastor. And so he did. He started a highly entrepreneurial church. It started on his first Sunday, what would back then would have been called a mega church. It started 300 his first, first day that it opened Mm. up as because the nature, he was a man who was very short, uh, had an incredible booming voice, could fill an auditorium of Mm. thousands without a microphone, unbelievable first tenor and a phenomenal piano player and a magnetic personality that he is probably one of the most respected and loved human beings I've ever been around in my life. He just passed away last October, Mm. age 92, still attended the church all this time, founding it in 1954, deeply loved. He was followed after 27 years of Pastor Butcher. John Maxwell was there 13 years. John Maxwell the world's greatest teacher on the issue of leadership. Mm. How could they have had two greater than Orville Butcher and John Maxwell, both of them entrepreneurial? Mm. Whereas Orville Butcher, I'd associate the word joy with John. I would, celebra- I would put the word hilarity. <laughs> His sense of humor <laughs> is phenomenal. So that's built into the DNA of the church. It makes it such a fun group to pastor, yeah. delightful group. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we take the mission very seriously. John mm. built into great leadership understanding into the church, gave it a real self-awareness of what leadership actually is, mm. and the legacy of those two men is is really phenomenal, yeah, yeah. and we, we honor them both, and I praise God. I, I felt very unworthy to be uh, coming as the new pastor. When I came, the church had 42 years with those two, and both of them, unlike most situations, were actually still attending the church. So, consequently, I was preaching to the entire 42-year-old, 10-year-old ten year pastors there of Orville Butcher and John Maxwell. That would work in about one out of a million cases, mm. but they were both so supportive of me. Wow. I mean, a 100% supportive. Wow. Orville Butcher and John Maxwell defended me to critics and stood with me like a rock. They could not have been better. I couldn't have made it without them. That's
1: so fantastic. I thank God
0: for them. I've been there now 15, what, 16 years yeah. as the pastor, and we're... Uh, Finally, we've had quite a building challenge. We hold the record of spending the most and getting the least for it in building. Uh, literally, I mean, it's a story of radical environmentalism that has taken us millions. Mm. Some birds discovered on our property. We lost, out of 138 acres, we lost 113 acres to two birds. We only get 25. They discovered Indian pottery shards on the property. It cost us millions. We had uh, what's called uh, blue granite, which is six times stronger than concrete. Had to blast them out, and it cost us millions to get it leveled. Uh, they discovered um, a darkened rock they 're convinced the Hamashaw Indians started a bonfire two thousand years ago. We lost a whole section of the property over that Radical environmentalism and then we got we had to widen the freeway it cost us millions and there was a lawsuit pertaining to that that cost us another seven point two million. The result is before we finally got an auditorium started we'd already spent thirty seven and a half million and eleven million more so we 're up to forty eight uh, 48 million uh, right mm. now, just getting two buildings up. It's a journey that I wouldn't want any other pastor to have to go through. Mm. But we miraculously survived an enormous building building challenge. That's John Vaughn wrote a story mm. on it, but people say, why don't you write a book on it? I said, I don't want to remember the story. <laughs> I don't want to forget this.
1: You know, one of the things I like about you so much that we share in common is we, we really both have a great interest in the history of the church, God's witness through the ages. Uh, you can't come to visit our, our chapel here at Beeson without recognizing the importance of the great cloud of witnesses that surround us every time we gather to worship. You you have a very similar kind of uh, love and passion for church history. And even in this building uh, idea that uh, you've just talked about, uh, some plans, if you're free to share those, that I'm just uh, amazed a local church pastor would have such a vision. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, first of all, I'll just say a word about your building Uh, how intriguing
0: is this structure, the Hodges Chapel? It's remarkable. You don't know this, but when I speak in the chapel in just a few moments, when I'm speaking down there, I'm going to entitle my talk, uh, These Walls Are Speaking. Not Mm. if these walls could speak. These walls are speaking. And I'm going to give people a tour. It's not that you probably haven't given it many times. I'm going to take them on a walk. We won't cover all the figures, but we're going to cover some of them and let them speak back to us on what they're saying off those walls, off those wood carvings, off those paint on surfaces, off those off those busts, What those what they're saying to us today right now. So praise God for your creativity in designing something like that. In front of our new church building, we'll be moving into it uh, this next February. Very excited about it. But right in front of it, there's a sidewalk 208 feet long by 24 feet wide. As people step out of their cars, the first thing they're going to see in the concrete, uh, in the beginning, God. Then we'll have Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac. And it will start through the major figures of biblical history, Old Testament, the New Testament. Then once we get there, then we will begin walking through the figures of church history in tile, in the concrete, and it will walk through the top 150 leaders, approximately of church history. When we get to John Wesley, of course, we, we bear his name. Uh, we will have some of the bricks from the ancient foundry in England where he had first oh, had yeah. a church buried in there with that as well. But people will be able to put headsets on or use brochures and walk the Heritage Walk, and it will cover The Heritage of the Church. And then off to the side, there'll be a child's playground area with a sidewalk over there with the books of the Bible arranged in a pattern, a hopscotch pattern, so kids will learn the books of the Bible by hopscotching on them (laughs) so they'll know them when they get done with their hopscotch. But I'm really excited about Heritage Way all the way through biblical history, the key figures.
1: We call our building a sermon in stone because it does really uh, represent it, and I'm so grateful that space, holy, sacred space, is important to you and to your church, and I can't wait to come out in San Diego and see it when it's all completed. Because Ours
0: will be on those on whom you stand. Mm. We stand on the lives of those. So we literally be standing on them yeah, yeah. and
1: their faith.
0: Their faith is what lifts us up and holds us.
1: One of the things I admire so much about you, Jim, is that God has given you a passion uh, to speak to this culture and to speak to some of the broader, deep moral pressing issues of the day. A lot of pastors run away from that. A lot of Christians say, "Well, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to do anything except just nurture the group where we are." I think you've rightly seen it's very Wesleyan of you that the world is our parish. We don't have the right to withhold the full gospel and the full Christian message uh, from the culture and the society in which we live. That was Wilberforce. Uh, and I'm so grateful that God has given you that passion. Now, say a little bit about your involvement in California in Proposition 8. That was a couple of years ago, uh, but the, the ramifications of it are still with us today, and it's an issue every Christian, every pastor needs to be aware of. You are a leader in the effort that brought a fifty-two forty-eight, 48 roughly, uh, victory for those who stood for marriage according to the traditional and biblical and historic civilizational way of thinking about it.
0: What's fascinating to me is we preach sermons about the boldness of Deborah, or the boldness of Esther, or Daniel, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, or Paul before everybody – and we don't realize these were people who made biblical application or biblical truths application to community, cultural, and national life. In other words, they were stepping way outside the pulpit and the comfort zone. We preach sermons like that, and then we as pastors today oftentimes shrink back in fear, hiding only behind our pulpits and the four walls of our church. I don't think God ordained that at all. Uh, Prop 8, many people may not realize that any time the government has a vested interest in endorsing or protecting same-sex relations or same-sex marriage, there are three casualties re- always at the altar, and the three casualties are parental rights, uh, personal freedoms, and religious liberties. They always go all across Europe as well as the states here in the U.S. where they have protected same-sex relations or se- same-sex marriage. That being the case, there's a lot at stake. It isn't a case we, li- we dislike gays. We don't dislike gays. We love all people. We want all people to made, be made new by the power of Christ Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, including those caught in the same-sex attraction. So we love all people. But at the same time, biblical truth mandates that we speak out on what the Scripture does. And the Bible begins uh, with a, a marriage. And it ends with a wedding of a bride and groom. And when Jesus speaks of it, it's always a man and a woman. Jesus in Matthew 19, a man and a woman come together. He quotes Genesis. And so consequently, we as pastors begin to rise up in California to defend the definition of marriage. It had been voted in 2000 by 61% that it would be put in a law, a state law. But the judges eventually overturned that. We anticipated they would. And so when the Supreme Court was getting ready to overturn it, we had a limited amount of time. We had to start the petition drive to get about a million signatures. We had to start it before we even knew the results of the Supreme Court ruling in order to make the deadlines to get it on the ballot. And so we started not knowing for sure how the California Supreme Court was going to rule. But it threw out 14 words from a California law that simply said only marriage between a man and woman is valid and recognized in California. That's it. That's the entire thing. And so we reinstated that, now going to try to raise the bar to get it as a California constitutional amendment, much harder to do in the state of California. And as the Lord began to bless me, I didn't intend to to give the leadership, I did. My wife was sick with cancer, and so I I gathered pastors and said, guys, I can't lead this, you're going to have to, and and I hope other pastors were going to lead it, but they didn't, and so I ended up rising up at that particular point. And so my church saw an anointing upon me, and so my board and my staff released me for 15 months i preached on sundays but released me to work on the 15 months to try to raise up thousands of pastors we formed relationships with the catholics that was very rich very meaningful and to this day i enormously value those relationships we are brothers and sisters and it's really it's really been absolutely a thrill what god did through that we formed a relationship with the LDS Church. I was not comfortable. It was not my desire. But Francis Schaefer talks about co-belligerency. Mm-hmm. We came together. We met, and we worked out a statement. I said, here's the basis, basis on which we'll work together, and that is you're not our theological brothers and sisters, but you're our friends and you're our neighbors. Mm-hmm. On the basis of that friendship and that neighborliness, we will work together to defend marriage. We did, and we have wonderful relationships from that as well. It was a costly endeavor. It took all of us working together, many people, to raise $42 million which, and we expended $42 million. Mm-hmm. And God gave me for our part of it, at least for evangelical pastors to raise up, he gave me a three-part strategy, communication, activation, and prayer. And the communication was to start doing webinars and satellite simulcast. I was blessed by one person who gave me a half million. Another person gave me 400000 I had $900,000 to work with to do this. We hired a team of eight people the next day after we got the money. And then starting putting these webinars together, we'd have as many as 3,400 pastors on the webinars with us, on, meeting in 215 locations across the state. We tried to raise them up in training, seven different webinars as we planned for that event. And then we would do evenings satellite simulcasts. They're very costly. They're 125000 a pop. We did three of those in the evenings uh, from our auditorium to 300, downlinked to 300 auditoriums across California and raised up the laypersons and tried to train them in what we call the second audience theory. By that I mean, here's the Bible verses that stand behind marriage, but the people we're going to have to go after is the mushy middle who don't care about the Bible. So we got to appeal to them from social science. So the second audience is the people who call themselves non-believers or non-church, but you'll meet them at the water cooler on Monday through Friday, and here's what you got to be able to say to them. So to give them data, we organize all social science data in an easy uh, acronym, or actually a mnemonic device, device, so they could remember it, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's so all they had to remember, and if they were believers, H, I, J. And so just 10 points to remember, alphabetically outlined, so we tried to train the whole state in in that. That was the communication part. The activation was, there are 36 million people in the state, 22 million could vote, 16 million are registered to vote, 12 to 13 million would vote. But we needed to know where those people stood, voter ID. So we started knocking on doors, and we our first weekend, we had 25,000 people knocking on doors to find who was against us solidly, who was for us solidly, and who was the middle that could be moved, because that's who we had to get. Because mm. the poll, the, the field poll showed us behind 38% to 55%, mm. and no poll in the history of the state had ever started a, le- a, a, a proposition, started in negative, and ever made it to the positive. That being the case, we had, we had to knock on a lot of doors, and we went out the first weekend with 25,000, and isn't it interesting, 24,000 of those we're LDS, mm. Mormons. Mm. We can only get 1,000 evangelicals and Catholics the first weekend out. Why? Because the Mormons are used to knocking on doors, and they're used to taking rejection. Mm-hmm. So they became the core that we desperately needed. And they also only make 2% of the state, but they gave 40% of the money. Wow. And so they really came through for us in a major, big way. Had we not had them, and then had we not had the black vote and the, and the Hispanic vote, we would never have mm-hmm. won. As weekends went on, then finally, we, on the day of the election, we had 100,000 boots on the ground. 100,000 people who we'd identified, who by now we knew, we had, we had phoned or knocked on doors of 12 million. We knew where they stood. So on the day of the election, it's posted at 4 in the afternoon who's voted and who's not. We could check our, our, our uh, um, data. And then people at every precinct, 21,000 precincts, I think it was, mm-hmm. where we had people there, and they started phoning all the people who were with us who had not voted yet. We'll drive you here. We'll go get you. We'll take care of your kids while you vote, anything, to get out the vote on that day. It was the largest largest grassroots movement probably in the history of America. Mm. Nothing compared like it since 2004 in Ohio, I'm told. And so that was pretty massive. But the undergirding of all of this was prayer and fasting. I called Lou Engel, and I says, Lou, I can't, with credibility, ask, the, ask our people to fast 40 days. My days of fast have been dinky because I like food, not fasting. So I need somebody like you because Lou had fasted over and over 40 days. I said, I want you to come out here and help us. He says, I will. I said, no, I want you to move your family and seven kids to San Diego. We'll provide you housing. Our church will give you housing. You'll come and call the whole state. He moved his entire staff. We moved our pastors out of office, moved his pastors in. And then he brought 50 young adults who did nothing but pray and fast 24-6. They took Sundays off. They prayed 24 hours a day. They slept on the floor of a church. They'd get up and pray. They had nothing but liquids. Then they went, nothing but water. And then finally they did nothing, no food, no water, no nothing the last three days. It was jolting to see it. Tens of thousands of us went on a 40-day fast. We had a prayer meeting at the end of that. 33,000 people showed up in Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego. 12 hours from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. literally on our faces. I can't say I pray on my face very much. That day, I did, with 33,000 people praying out loud for nonstop for 12. I'd never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. I had ne- We knew we were desperate. We knew we had to have God's touch. The indications in the polls, we had eased up, and we were now exactly tied. Mm-hmm. That's where we were. Mm-hmm. We were going to have to have a breakthrough from Almighty God to carry us through. People joined by webcast. Even the Knights of Columbus joined 3 million strong at 1 p.m. to mm-hmm. pray with us. Uh, the uh, Knights of Columbus marched and processed into the auditorium, or into the arena, coming from the, the founding Catholic Church, what's called the Mission of San Diego, marched in. As they came in, I led the congregation who was there in a, a prayer of repentance for the response of Protestants to Catholics, and put-downs that we had done, and unkind things we had said mm-hmm. about them. It was a day of uniting. It was a day of a lot of repentance over a lot of issues, and God met us that day, and we sensed. That something happened between 4:20 and 4:50 that afternoon. That God was turning our state. We we weren't sure what it was, but then, on most people had already fasted 40 days. They said, "What's another three days?" So most people just fasted right through until Tuesday, and then Tuesday we saw the miracle happen. They said, "Could never happen." 52.3 percent of Californians voted in favor of traditional biblical natural
1: marriage that's a remarkable story i think that's one of the turning events in the recent history of our country and thank god that you were there and willing to take leadership in doing that i want to also thank you jim for being such a strong supporter of the manhattan declaration some of us a couple of years ago felt that we needed to make that statement which ends with the the most quoted line that we will ungrudgingly give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but under no circumstances will we give to Caesar that which is God's. Uh, we talk about the sanctity of life, the dignity of marriage as a lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman, and religious freedom for all people everywhere, which ends with this statement that we will ungrudgingly render to Caesar all that is Caesar's, but under no circumstances will we give to Caesar that which belongs to God. And you have been such a tremendous supporter of the Manhattan Declaration, and I just want to take this occasion to publicly thank you for your collegiality and support in this document. I had the privilege of being in that awesome meeting in New York City in September of 2009,
0: the Metropolitan Club, there that eventually became the Manhattan Declaration. And I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you, because there's precious few academicians that are willing to step that far out in boldness to make such clear declarations. This is a trumpet that is sounded with great clarity. I I wish everybody would go there and sign up, if they have not, and encourage everybody they can to sign up for the
1: Manhattan Declaration. You just go to ManhattanDeclaration.org and read the Declaration if you agree with it, if it resonates with your spirit then join us. We have almost a half million Americans. We ought to have two, three, four times that many, and we're praying that God will continue to bring others to this cause. Now, say just a word about the Alliance Defense Fund. You're so involved with that, and there are great uh, preparations being made for an event coming up in just a few weeks. Tell us about that.
0: In just a nutshell, Lyndon Baines Johnson arrived back in Washington, D.C. after being re-elected as Senator of Texas in 1954 angry at two businessmen that had formed secular nonprofits that spoke out against him as a candidate because they thought he was soft on communism. He got back furious. He had quite a temper, went before the Senate, inserted without, there was no discussion, an amendment into the IRS code. It went into it, no discussion of it. And his chief of staff admits we had no intention of this to apply to churches. The IRS took that The 1954 Johnson Amendment applied it to all nonprofits, including churches, and the result is for 57 years, we have lost the 160-some previous history where pastors would speak with freedom and boldness, anything they wanted to, because of our First Amendment rights of freedom of religion and freedom of expression in terms of freedom of speech. And the result is now we have pastors afraid to speak on anything, afraid to use the A word, abortion, the H word, homosexuality, even the M word, marriage now, because that's considered Mm. a political statement, in Mm -hmm. quotes. And so the Alliance Defense Fund wisely in 2008 called for 33 pastors to rise up, stand against that because it's never been constitutionally challenged and the IRS doesn't want it to be. And they recorded their sermons and sent them to the IRS and the IRS did nothing. The next year, 84 pastors did the same thing. Nothing happened. The next year, which was last year, 100 did. This year, we want to see 100 pastors rise up October the 2nd Pulpit Freedom Sunday, it's time to reclaim the freedom we once had. A pastor should be able to say, the Bible says this about abortion, it says this about marriage, these candidates stand this way on these issues, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, we should stand for those things that are true to the Scripture. A pastor should be able to say anything he or she wants from the pulpit. That would be true of a liberal pastor as well, anybody, because of the freedom of religion, freedom that we have of speech. And so on October the 2, Pul- uh, Pulpit Freedom Sunday takes place, and we want to encourage people to go to pulpitfreedom.com, pulpitfreedom.com, and sign up immediately to be one of the pastors, one of a 1,000 or 2,000 pastors on that day standing. We'll record our sermons. We'll send them to the IRS. The Alliance Defense Fund has 2,059 affiliated attorneys, and it's growing every day, who are willing to stand up and defend us pro bono if we'll be willing to stand
1: up and be the men and women of God that He has called us to be. Sometimes the people say to me, what can we do? (laughs) Here's something you can do. If you're a pastor, remember October the 2nd, 2011, Pulpit Freedom Sunday. I love that because it really talks about the integrity and the compulsion we have under Christ to speak out in his name and on his word. So I don't know how many seminary presidents would say what you've just
0: said. I got to stop again and say, thank you for being you. Thank you. for Now, maybe there's a number of them, but I haven't found a lot of them. I'm not sure i found any of them, and I suspect there are some, and praise God for those that are out there, but thank God for you. I don't know if the people listening to this podcast realize the treasure we have in you. I'm not saying this to palaver you. I'm saying because the boldness that's needed in this country is so critical right now. We are at a crisis situation as a nation. David Barton and I led people on a tour a year ago called the Next Great Awakening Tour of Boston, New York, Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., Harvard, Yale, Princeton, First and Second Great Awakening sites. And the, the highlight for me was when we went past the home of the yellow-colored two-story building, the Jonas Clark home in Lexington, Massachusetts, because that's where Paul Revere was trying to get on that midnight ride because he knew the preachers of America were a threat to the Brits that were trying to rob us of our freedom. Once again, the pastors of America need to rise up with a Jonas Clark spirit.
1: We're almost out of time. You referred earlier in the podcast to your wife, Carol, and the aggressive cancer with which she struggled now for four years, I believe. Uh, in a closing word, would you just say something to those who are listening, particularly others who maybe are struggling with a similar situation or at least ministering to those who do? How have you as a minister so involved across the spectrum in so many worthy issues, pastor of a great church? How have you felt the Lord's presence and help in this time?
0: For one thing, my wife and I decided when we started this journey, we would refuse to allow cancer to define us. We are more than cancer people. We are obviously fighting a cancer battle. Her cancer is primary peritoneal carcinoma. It's very aggressive and it's very advanced and very few make it to the five-year anniversary, and we're past four years now, and it's a tough it's a tough battle. I'll concede that very quickly. At the same time, I resolve the issue. We, we fully expect a miracle. We're in a zone where we have to have a miracle. We don't have other options. We are getting the best treatment we can in the U.S. We fly sometimes weekly to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. We have some of the top there are in the world, and we've crossed the border and gone to other places for alternative treatment as well as so the best we possibly can in alternative treatment as well as surgery uh, she'll be set for probably a third surgery fairly soon the cancer has come back every year for four rigorous years and it's taking a toll the chemotherapy the radiation all the treatment has taken a toll on her we've been married 40 years cancer cannot take away love we are madly in love we are like we are like newlyweds we i cannot hardly stand to be away from her. I'd be happy to be on an island alone with her the rest of my life because we we just delight in each other. We're we're just madly in love. I don't know another way to say that. And she's just beautiful as can be uh, to me. But we refuse to allow cancer to be the defining point in our life. When the cancer came back the third time, we're now at the fourth time now, but I came back the third time, the oncologist called us, and, and she actually was not there in the home. I took the call myself, and I asked the question that no primary caregiver should ever ask, or neither should a patient. I said, Doctor, we expect a miracle, but barring a miracle, how long do we have? And he answered it forthrightly. And, and my body actually shook when I heard that, because it, it wasn't a long time. And about three or four days later, I sensed the Lord saying, you're fighting for the life of your wife, and you're fighting vigorously. You're also fighting the life for the life of your, your nation. That America has advanced aggressive cancer. We are at a crisis time in America, and we have limited time in this nation. That's what prompts me to do what I do. And even recently, I was supposed to speak in Washington D.C. My wife said, "You need to go." I said, "No, you're too sick." I called without her knowing it and canceled. And she found out. She said, "You go right back in there and call me." You 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 go. I have prayed for your voice to be able to voice one of the voices of righteousness. Mm-hmm. You go. And so I called him back. Said, "My wife says I must come." So I I, I came. And uh, we're, we're we're learning to walk through each day. Uh, we have a new normal in our lives. She generally cannot get up till around two thirty, three thirty in the afternoon. That's when her day kind of begins. Her day is a very short day because of uh, of lack of strength. In the in the event that we would not see the miracle that we long for and believe we're going to have, if that would if that were to occur, I resolved it clear back one night at midnight through a truckload of tears in my home that Job 2.9 would not be my vantage point, Job's wife said, curse God and die, that if that would happen, that would not impugn God's love at all. We've resolved that mm-hmm. issue, mm-hmm. and that does not in any way mitigate the love of God that he has deeply for my wife and me. At the same time, in full candor, we fully expect, we're not in denial of what we face. We know how aggressive this cancer is. We've, we've read the medical literature, but we fully expect Uh, to see a miracle
1: and her to defy the odds. Amen. Jim, thank you for sharing uh, this very personal, uh, wrenching uh, part of your life that's going on right now. And I want to ask all of our podcast listeners, wherever you are, uh, just today, take a few minutes, will you? And pray for Jim Garlow. Pray for his wife, Carol, that God would see fit in his own providence to give a miracle to this woman and to bring them back together in full health. And pray for Jim and his ministry. As he goes throughout this country, as God leads him, uh, offering the kind of leadership we need in a moment like this to stay true to the gospel, true to the faith, and true to the values that God has given us to cherish in this time. Thank you for calling
0: people to pray, and if they want to see updated prayer requests, they can go to skylinechurch.org, skylinechurch.org, and they can click on Carol's picture, and we try to update it periodically on how to pray. Thank you for, for making that request known.
1: Thank you, GM, for this conversation. Fun to be with you. And now I want to invite you to a special conference that we're having here at Beeson, November 1 and 2, 2011, our Reformation Spirituality Conference. A lot of people, when they think about the Reformation, they regard it as a great event in history, economically, socially, politically, at a tremendous kind of a watershed complex of events. All that's true. But in this conference, we want to get back to the spiritual core at the heart of this great renewal movement and ask the question, what can we learn today in our own spiritual formation from the Reformers who forged such important patterns of discipleship, prayer, Bible study, worship? and living out of the Christian faith. Dr. Herman Selderhoos from the Netherlands will be one of our plenary speakers, and also Dr. Carla Aperloo-Boersma, who directs the project REFO 500. This is a consortium of schools and institutions that are coming together in preparation for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church Door at Fittenberg. In addition to these scholars, we also have a number of our own wonderful Beeson faculty. Dr. Gerald Bray will be back with us, Dr. Carl Beckwith, our new Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Dr. David Hogg. It's going to be a great event of learning, of prayer, of worship together. And so we invite you to come and join us for the Reformation Spirituality Conference, November 1 and 2, right here at Beeson Divinity School. And you can register online at our website, www.beesondivinity.com. Come join us for this special event.